Well, hello again. My name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast series titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. This is episode number 15, and part two on the topic of how the spiritual and physical realms interact. Before we get back to that subject, I want to let you know that the video project on essentially this same series topic is now complete. Yes, it's in the can and has been published to my YouTube channel. The title of the video is The Biblical History of the Spirit Realm. It ended up being a two-part series totaling a little over an hour and a half in length. In the first video, which mainly pertains to what the Old Testament says about the spirit realm, is about 54 minutes long, and the second, which mainly lines up with the New Testament, is about 10 minutes less than that, around 45 minutes. They should be watched in order, but the second video, which talks about what Jesus accomplished in relation to the spirit realm when he was here, is my personal favorite. (laughs) If you've been following along with this podcast series, you're going to recognize most of what I talk about in the videos. There are a couple extra things I bring up in the videos, and it puts things in a little bit more of a chronological order. So it might be a helpful recap for you if you're interested. It might also be a good introduction to this subject if you have someone in mind who you want to introduce this topic to. Anyway, you can give the two videos a watch if you're interested by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries YouTube channel. As bad or evil as the world may seem to us sometimes, it could be far worse. Although we see lawlessness already at work, why is it that we don't see blatant manifestations of the spirit realm principalities, authorities, and rulers? Why don't the sons of God still regularly come down and lay with the daughters of men? Because Even during this present darkness, we're still dealing with restrained evil. God is holding back and restraining those of the heavenly host that are in rebellion against him. He sets parameters around what may happen, as in the case of the disobedient sons of God who by their actions produced the race of the Nephilim. He had them bound up and basically stored in hell, which that's where they are right now until their final judgment. One day, at the end of this age, temporarily, it will no longer be the case that evil is restrained. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say to the ecclesia in Thessalonica about this. This is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-9. to Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
Some interpret this restrainer to be the chief prince and archangel Michael, and you know, just an angel. Maybe. I'm not positive of the mechanics behind it, but my assumption is that it's the spirit or will of God that's restraining the forces of evil. Either way, one day, at the end of this age, evil will no longer be restrained for a short period of time. Though much of this might paint a scary picture, like unseen powerful forces are out to get us and there's nothing we can do about it, it's far from the case where the elect are concerned. Even before Jesus ascended to heaven, the forces of evil were placed in subjection to his authority. That is in essence what's meant by Jesus' statement recorded in Luke 10:18, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He said that after his 70 disciples returned to him after being out on his behalf. They had found that even the demons were subject to them because of the authority of Jesus. Belonging to Jesus and his household holds the highest prestige and wields the highest authority in the unseen realm. Bearing his name as our master and abiding in his truth is our best defense against the powers of darkness. The elect of God, hopefully that includes you and I, are known and recognized by those in the unseen realm. Although most supernatural activity takes place in the unseen realm, we read the stories in the Bible of the supernatural realm crossing over into the physical. Angels show up at least 18 different times in the New Testament. Far from a common occurrence, but Paul tells us it may happen when we're not even aware of it. Additionally, we read about demonic activity. Rubbing elbows with the supernatural realm is far from normal or natural. It wouldn't be called supernatural otherwise. I'm going to speculate that because Jesus was walking the earth and Satan drew a third of the angels of heaven to follow him specifically with destroying the Messiah in mind, that there was an abnormally denser number of fallen beings in the region of Israel in Jesus' day. So, we could or should expect a higher level of demonic activity in Jesus' day in and around Israel. Nevertheless, they are still around today, although maybe they're not quite as dense. <laughs> they're spread out a little bit more. Well, when supernatural beings do enter the physical realm, what can they do? Are they only spirits with no substance? Because they're not physical, they're spiritual. Many would argue they have no substance. Are they simply visions of beings? Vapors? Are they merely thoughts that have been somehow superimposed in our minds? And I'm only saying these things because I've heard these things, right? Well, a composite of the appearances in the Bible of such beings does provide some answers. So what follows is a starter list of spirit being abilities when they transmutate or transfigure into physical beings. First, we know from all the stories involving manifestations of angels that they can sometimes be seen by the human eye. Well, that requires light rays to bounce off of something physical. Likewise, angelic beings, when they manifest themselves in the physical realm, can be heard 
by human ears. Well, that also requires something physical to happen, like a vocal cord to vibrate and compress air into sound waves. The story contained in Acts chapter 12 tells us that they have the ability to move objects and be physically felt by humans. Listen to this incredible story in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 to 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This angel struck Peter on the side. He caused there to be some sort of light which shone in the cell. He spoke. He could be seen. He caused doors to be opened. That either happened because the angel willed it, or another unseen being was assisting him and opened it, which again demonstrated the ability to move or manipulate physical matter or objects. This angel also provided specific and direct instructions to Peter. As far as moving things, I hear they're also pretty good at rolling stones away. In Genesis chapter 18, where we read the story of God and two angels paying a visit to Abraham, we learn that they can eat. They shared a meal of something like veal and flatbread or pancakes with Abraham. We know from the story found in Genesis 6 that we've looked at probably several times by now, where the sons of God descended, that angels can have sex with women. Remember, just because angels don't marry or are given in marriage in heaven doesn't mean they were not created without plumbing and the ability to use it. Genesis 6 tells us directly, in fact, that they were created with such abilities. In the story found in Daniel chapter 8, verse 18, we see that angels can cause someone to regain consciousness and provide strength and clarity to them. On the other hand, we know that demons can control a person's thoughts and actions to the point of appearing to control them as their own possession. They can communicate through a person they possess by utilizing their host's vocal cords. More than one may do this to an individual person at the same time. When Jesus was greeted by two demon-possessed men as he landed on the beach at the Gadarenes, or Gergesenes, depending on which book you read it in, Jesus asked the demon his name. The demon replied that his name was Legion, because there were many demons that were possessing these men. How many demons exactly we don't know, 
but there were between four and 6,000 men in a Roman legion. You can read this story in all three synoptic gospels. Mark chapter 5 includes the details about the demon answering, We are legion. Spirit beings can recognize God's elect. I'm reminded of a story in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 18. Luke wrote this, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This gal that was following them might have recognized Paul and his entourage because she had seen them before and knew what he did. But Paul recognized what was going on as being the result of demonic activity. It was the demon who recognized Paul and the other men he was traveling with. Then there's the story of the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Shiva. That's found in Acts chapter 19. They attempted to use Jesus' name, the authority of his name, to cast out demons as they had witnessed Paul doing. The demons replied to them. Now this says the demons replied. It doesn't even say that their host replied to them. But they said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That was right before that these demons used their human host to beat up all seven sons of Shiva. I have to wonder what it is about the elect that demonic beings can recognize them in the spirit realm as belonging to Jesus. These seven sons were not recognized by the demons as belonging to Jesus. And so they, the demons, knew that these sons did not have the authority or authorization to use his name and take care of Jesus' business. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul talks about being detained by Satan. We know in the book of Daniel that an angelic being that was called the prince of the kingdom of Persia detained the angel that God had sent to deliver a message to Daniel. However, Paul, who was flesh and blood, said he was kept from going somewhere by Satan. Well, this most likely took the form of some kind of an illness or maybe imprisonment or just some other life circumstance that Paul attributed to being caused by Satan. Now, mind you, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about who Satan was effective against. Satan was able to keep Paul from doing something that he thought he should be doing. Next, spiritual beings can cause physical disabilities. We know how Satan did this to Job. As indicated in the book of Job, what Satan can accomplish, unless he is restrained by God, is not limited to what his human agents or children can do for him. Satan and his angels can directly cause calamity. Listen to this passage from Job chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord 
and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. There's another story found in Luke chapter 13 that clearly illustrates this. This is Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. Now notice that Luke says there is a disabling spirit involved, and Jesus attributes the illness directly to Satan. Here we go. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So, Jesus attributes this woman's illness for 18 years to a demon or Satan. It's not only fallen angels that can afflict people with disabilities. When the two angels that visited Abraham went to Sodom and Gomorrah, they ended up causing people to go blind who were trying to, quote, know the angels in the biblical sense. There are very likely more things, perhaps many more things, that are contained in Scripture which testify as to spiritual beings' capabilities when they cross over into the physical realm. But they are, we know they are so much more than simply messengers. I can hear you saying, Doug, what about this one? And that's great. I'm confident there are more. But in the interest of time, I need to move on for now. However, one more is worth mentioning directly, even though I've alluded to it a couple of times now. That is, since the cross, we know that demonic spirits will listen to and obey the commands that come with the legitimate authority of Jesus, even when the commands are not coming out of Jesus' own mouth. I think it's important to remember that for all the abilities that God gave the angels, those same abilities can be misused by their fallen angelic counterparts. We can't be sure about all the mechanics behind how Satan manipulates his children and attacks the elect. But let me give you a few of my thoughts that I base on the totality of what I see in Scripture and temper it with a little bit of experience. First, humans have spirits that will continue to exist even after our physical bodies die. Those that are elect to salvation gain a new spirit that will experience life with God forever. But those who are not saved also have a spirit, a part of them that will continue to exist in the unseen realm when they depart their physical bodies. Essentially, a very real part of human beings, even while they are alive in their physical bodies, 
is something that cannot be observed in the physical realm. It can't be measured. It's their spirit. We are not just a physical bag of gray matter containing axons and dendrites and neural pathways that allow us to think and remember things. We have a part of us which is an unseen spirit that underlies our physicality. I don't know where the line between our conscious minds and our spirits is. I think the awareness of what's going on with our spirits as opposed to our thoughts in our mind gets pretty muddy sometimes. To what extent that muddiness occurs varies from person to person and will also vary over the course of one person's lifetime. The more one is occupied with their fleshy, carnal side, the less likely they are to be aware of what their spirit is trying to tell them. However, our spirits are likely able to sense things pertaining to the spirit in the spirit realm. You might think of it as a spiritual hearing or a spiritual sight. So, simply put, our spirits may be subject to, for lack of a better word, hearing things from fallen spiritual beings. This might come in the form of an attack. They're attacking one's very being, bringing up their sinful past. Maybe they're hounding someone about how foolish the gospel sounds. Maybe they're encouraging someone to explore their lustful desires further. It could be thousands of different things that our spirits are subjected to. Like I said, how much of this makes it through to our conscious thoughts will vary from person to person. But it is so important to recognize when this occurs, because for the child of God, our defense is to resist these thoughts. Listen to what James has to say about this in James chapter 4, verses 5 to 9. Notice here how he references a spirit that's currently dwelling in us here and now, not merely a spirit that we are promised one day to have. Here we go. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Resisting the devil and submitting to God is our best defense against the schemes of the devil. Not being double-minded, dividing our affections between this world and the kingdom of God. Rather, we're to go all in with Jesus. Okay, so allow me to talk about weird stuff <laughs> for just a bit. Since this weird stuff may be generated in the spirit realm, no doubt generated in the spirit realm, by spiritual beings. What's going on in the physical world when strange phenomena occur that have no natural explanation? Does that even happen? Yes, it does happen. I don't know all the reasons why. I assume there are countless reasons why God allows this or causes it. I have suspicions about some of those reasons. But first, I don't believe that Scripture either supports or explicitly denies the possibilities that departed souls of humans, like ghosts, 
could hang around and interact with the living outside of the specific instances, which are very, very few, that are reported in the Bible. But normally things that are impossible, impossible to do or impossible to experience, are not prohibited. Like nobody says it's prohibited to fall up into the sky because that's just not possible, right? Like if it were not possible to not keep the Sabbath, God would not have made a rule to keep the Sabbath. Well, contacting the dead is specifically prohibited as though it were possible to do so. If it were not possible to contact the dead, why would it be against the rules? Secondly, Jesus' disciples thought Jesus was a ghost when they first saw him walking on the water. You can read that in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26. The concept of ghosts was well known in Middle Eastern cultures, and the disciples were obviously familiar with the idea of ghosts. But just as obvious is that they were shocked and frightened to see one. It wouldn't have been something normal in their lives, like, oh, there's just another ghost. No, it was shocking and out of the ordinary. Like, perhaps they'd never seen that before. They'd just heard about it. But nevertheless, it was a well-known thing in Middle Eastern cultures. The spirit of Samuel was summoned up by the Witch of Endor, <laughs> which is a cool name. Sounds like something George Lucas would come up with for one of his movies, but it's not. It's a story you can read about in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And another story, some of the disciples saw the spirits of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's found in Matthew 17. Well, we know that at least Moses had died a natural death. So, <clears throat> these are few and isolated occurrences. They're obviously rare and not the norm. They served a specific purpose in telling God's story. I believe that's why they're included. They were noteworthy and sound like fantastic and weird stories because they were highly unusual stories. For those that are prone to trying to superimpose every scripture into your own life, you'll be trying to superimpose things that are way north of over, what, 99% of the world's population have ever experienced. It's more likely that when it rarely appears that the supernatural realm interacts with the physical realm, it's not because of ghosts or human spirits, which once were physically alive, but rather it's because of demonic or angelic activity. Either way, I can't biblically or experientially rule out the possibility that brushes with the supernatural world do happen. People, including pastors, that deny such things do occur are doing those who listen to them on Sunday morning a great disservice. To give you some insight as to how my own skeptical, criminal justice system trained observer mind works when credible unexplained phenomena occur, which is not obviously just made up by a person for whatever their motivation, I first suspect there is more going on in the physical realm than meets the eye. This is to say my default 
is to assume there is a natural explanation for the phenomenon that the involved person was just not aware of. As an illustration, I recently watched a show where a dog got loose, it ran into an old church, this was somewhere in Northern Ireland, and it urinated on the floor above a statue of Mary. As the urine dripped through the cracks in the floor, the people below saw it and they perceived that the statue was crying far from it. So if physical explanations based on current human knowledge are absent, I still suspect that there may be a natural or physical cause which is yet to be discovered by science. Science, put that in air quotes, has constantly changed or evolved. You know, how unscientific. It could be that there are forces of nature yet to be discovered that would provide natural explanations for some things that simply cannot be explained now. For example, maybe Bigfoot <laughs> really is running around. Maybe there are extraterrestrials. And maybe physical things can be imprinted in such a way that they'll give off some sort of weird energy in a room. I don't know. I just know that we keep making discoveries all the time that once would have been thought of as a mystical thing or magic. So I have to keep this possible explanation open. However, if because of the circumstances, neither of those natural explanations make sense, whether it's uh, there's something we don't know about, uh, there's more to it than meets the eye, or whether it's something that's not yet discovered, if both those things just don't make sense, then the way I personally sort it out is if whatever happens causes fear or confusion or division to the detriment of the kingdom of God, it can be blamed on Satan and his minions. If what occurred provided help or constructive direction to the glory of God, it was likely something of God. I don't spend much time wondering beyond that if God's trying to tell me something. In the Bible, when God wants someone's attention, it's never any problem for him to get it. When God wants to tell someone something directly, he knows how to get a hold of us. Don't ever worry about that. There was never any question in Mary's mind after Gabriel visited her that God had sent the message. Peter was not left with the question in his mind if it was his own thoughts or really an angel that whacked him on his side and told him to flee the jail cell he was in. So, at risk of alienating you forever, <laughs> thank you for tuning in to all the previous broadcasts, or being myself being committed as a mental patient, let me share a couple of personal experiences. I've wrestled with how many details to share because I don't want this to be about me and I don't want to distract attention away from what Scripture says about all this. I don't want this to turn into a big scary story, ghost storytelling time. I have little use personally for such paranormal based TV shows that seem so popular today. I can't turn the channel fast enough. Anyway, so how to convey enough detail to give the stories credibility and convey that there are no natural explanations, but not distract from what the Bible says about the spirit realm is the, is the key here. I am also very conscious of not wanting to cause fear in anyone. 
God is not the author of fear. He is just the opposite, and I don't want to be helping out the opposite side. I think that one of our weapons against fear, in this case fear of what we can't see or fear of the unknown, is knowledge and understanding. Understanding what may be going on around us and understanding our position in the unseen universe when we belong to Jesus. But it's because of these hesitancies that I'm concerned about that these things don't get talked about and they remain a mystery. A scary mystery that Satan is able to capitalize on. Literally, in some cases, as Hollywood turns a tidy profit in the hopes that people remain scared at this type of thing. It's my desire that the followers of Jesus are able to move this stuff from the fear category to the understanding what's going on category and not being fearful of it any longer. But that's what I wrestle with and how I'm coming to share the following. I am really hopeful that what I'm going to share may prove to be of comfort to those of you who may have experienced something in the past that you don't know what to do with, while at the same time you've been too afraid to bring up with anyone because the topic is just taboo. But just to be safe, if you have kids around who might be prone to not knowing what to do with their fear, or if you think that this could uh, cause fear in you that you don't know what to do with and you're going to lose sleep over it, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. Honestly, much of this subject matter I've been talking about with, in regards to uh, the biblical worldview of the spirit realm is not beginner follower of Jesus stuff <laughs> that we've been talking about. It's for those who desire to have a deeper understanding behind the basic gospel. Well, it's been many years now, but I've had several experience with unexplained phenomenon that quickly come to mind. <laughs> I've thought about them a lot over the years. All these experiences came out of the blue. I was definitely not seeking a paranormal experience. I did not want a paranormal <laughs> experience. I had not been thinking about any paranormal experiences prior to them happening. In all the occurrences, except one, and I'm not even going to talk about that here, I was not feeling particularly spiritual or seeking God's will. I was very much awake. I was very much sober every time. There were no cats or dogs in the house that could have caused anything. Many of these things occurred after I became a law enforcement professional. The reason why I say that is because I want you to know I was trained to objectively observe things while applying necessary amounts of skepticism. My wife, Angela, was also present for a couple of the weird events that I'm going to tell you about here and experienced the same things that I did. Well, quickly, or maybe not quickly. The first thing <laughs> I'll tell you about is our piano that I inherited from my mom. One evening... I was sitting in our family room watching, of all things, a Billy Graham crusade. This was in the mid-1980s. Angela was behind me in the kitchen area talking on the phone to someone, when suddenly the piano, which was in the living room area about 30 feet away, played a single note on the high end of the keyboard. 
I rotated around quickly. Now, mind you, this is before we had kids, too, so there were no kids in the house that could have done this. I rotated around quickly and looked at Angela. I, I can just still rem clearly remember this. She wrinkled her forehead at me and, while still on the phone listening, pointed to the living room. She heard it also. Then the piano did it again. As I walked into the living room, I know it sounds like a horror movie, but I felt the temperature drop and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I quickly searched my house for an intruder and found it empty of any physical living beings other than Angela and myself. No cats, which have cutely pawed out a single note on, <laughs> on the piano. I ended up pulling the piano apart, looking for a physical explanation, a snapped string, a mouse nest. I found nothing. Over the next few months, the piano did this <laughs> a couple more times. We investigated it each time. We found no physical explanation. I consulted a piano tuner years later. He said there is no natural explanation for that. His words were, it sounds like you have a poltergeist. Just an FYI, it takes about 50 grams of force or a little over a tenth of a pound to gently push down a piano key. But that doesn't even make a sound. It takes far more to make the hammer strike the string. So, you know, this is like a couple tenths of a pound that it took to depress the key to make this sound. Well, because of the family business I was a part of at the time, Angela and I moved from our home in Cresswell, Oregon, to Bend, Oregon, over the mountain range. We took the piano with us. Well, while living there, in the shadow of the Three Sisters Mountains, the piano remained silent unless played by humans. Like, <laughs> it should have always done, right? Well, because Angela was getting ready to give birth to our first child, we decided to move back to Cresswell, where we would have the support of our families. We moved back into the same house, which we'd rented out while we were in Bend. We were buying it. I know this sounds so entirely like the ending to a made-up story, but it's absolutely true. The day that we were moving, we bought some pizzas to share with those who helped us move back. When the last piece was eaten and the last person that helped us left, they walked out the door. I closed the door. And I walked back by the piano into the kitchen where Angela was. And guess what happened? The piano played the exact same note it played every time before. Well, of course, we did a lot of praying. <laughs> and we've lived in a different house ever since now for decades. It's been about 35 years since the piano played itself. I hope it never does again. Okay, the next experience that I'll share with you took place in the current house we live in, in the early 1990s. I now worked for the sheriff's office. I was assigned to guarding inmates in a minimum custody environment on graveyard shift. I was up watching TV one evening prior to going to work that night. Angela was in the back part of the house, presumably in the bedroom, when I heard what I thought was her walking around in the attic. It sounded like she was moving from one end of the attic to the other, moving boxes around. I was curious as to what she was doing, but not enough to get up and go see for myself. But a short time later, it was time to get ready for work. So I went in and 
talk to Angela. The ladder that we used to access the attic at the time was up and in the stowed in the ceiling position. I asked Angela what she'd been doing in the attic. She told me she had not been in the attic and that she'd been in the bedroom the entire time. She said she heard the sounds also in the attic and thought that I had been up there. Of course, the next move was with 9mm in hand <laughs> to search the attic. There was no way in there but up the ladder. Well, there was no one in my attic. So that is weird or unexplainable enough. However, when I got to work and I was receiving my briefing from Deputy Nate, the deputy I was relieving in the area that I was watching inmates sleep in, <laughs> he told me that a certain inmate, we'll call Mr. S, had been up after the other inmates had went to bed. Deputy Nate allowed this because Mr. S was some sort of a combination of Muslim and Eastern mystic, and he was allowing him to do his nightly prayers and meditations so as not to infringe on his religious rights that could be reasonably accommodated. Of interest here is that, according to what Deputy Nate had told me, Mr. S was doing his prayers and meditation at the exact same time Angela and I had heard the sounds in the attic. At the time, I didn't put the two things together. It was the next morning, after the inmates had eaten their breakfast, that Mr. S approached me and said that he's been praying for me and the other deputies and asking his spirit friends to go out to our homes and check on us. I shared this information with Deputy Nate the next time I saw him that, that same night. You know, it was morning and I would see him again that later that night. He said, that's really weird, oh yeah? Because a few days earlier, he heard someone walking down the hall towards his bedroom. He, like me, grabbed his pistol and cleared his house. The thing is, the time he said he heard footsteps was the same time I'd made a note that I had allowed Mr. S to get up, sit in the corner under, in his cross-legged style yoga position underneath the red nightlight and do his prayers and meditation. Unexplained footsteps and a coincidental explanation? Maybe, but I remain convinced that Mr. S. was engaging in what the Bible refers to as divination, communicating with spirits. Okay, the last experience I'll share also occurred many years ago now when I was working for the sheriff's office. I was working swing shift now as a deputy assigned to the work release center. I'd gotten off work and had made the 20-mile midnight journey home safely. As I walked up the steps to unlock the door to my house, I experienced a feeling of great anxiety, as though someone credible had just told me that I had an intruder in my house. I didn't hear any voices. I just experienced the after-effects of being given the information. I entered the house, and somehow I knew it was true. There was someone or something in my house that did not belong there. Of course, my family was all in bed and the house was quiet. I crept through the house carefully inspecting every room to make sure everyone was safe and in their beds. I checked all the door locks. Everything looked physically secure. Angela and the kids were all sound asleep. However, I could not shake the feeling. Something was wrong. 
there was an intruder in my home. So, standing in the middle of my kitchen, I prayed, I don't know who you are, but you are not welcome here. In the name of Jesus, get out of my house. What happened next is very much burnt in to my hippocampus memory. It was what sounded like someone took a dictionary-sized book. Remember back when we had dictionaries that were books? And they threw it full force against the mini-blinds in a bedroom in the front of the house. This was like a cause-and-effect thing. I prayed, and then immediately, wham! I bolted into the living room and then into the bedroom expecting to find a broken window and things strewn about. What I found was my son sleeping soundly and everything where it should be. But the feeling that I had and the apparent intruder had gone. For those experiences that involved physical actions, like the piano playing itself, the footsteps in the attic, or something forcefully striking the mini-blinds in my son's room, I remained skeptical and continued to look for alternative physical explanations for years. I'm not asking you to give me any suggestions because I think I've heard them all, but I would still today be open to a rational physical explanation. A few other experiences that I've had seem to have had constructive purposes, like providing direction, clarity, awareness, or in one case, even some knowledge. Many of these things may have frightened or at least vexed some people a great deal. I admittedly have thought about these occurrences for decades in some cases now. It's not important to me that anyone else believes me about any of these experiences. A few of them are too personal for me to even discuss, but all of them, for me alone, were extremely confidence-building. Confidence in the existence of an unseen spirit realm. I have personal experience that the unseen realm is very real and interactive with the physical. No one will ever be able to convince me of anything differently. In the end, everything that's happened does have an explanation when I consider what the Bible tells us about the existence of the spirit realm. And I believe what the Bible is saying about it is still absolutely relevant today. Now, again, I don't expect you to believe in the existence of the spirit realm based on my stories. If you believe in Jesus and you trust in what the Bible says, I would have some expectation that you believe it's real based on what the Bible says. Most are skeptical to one level or another. One might ask, why doesn't everyone experience brushes with the unseen realm? I got to tell you, I don't know. But I also don't know that that statement is true. Perhaps many do experience brushes with the unseen realm, and they're just not aware of it. They don't recognize it, or they're in denial. As we see in the Bible, God does not need to directly interact with everyone in a supernatural way. When it did rarely occur, as indicated in the Bible, it was because of some integral part of his story that needed to be told. He routinely sends us messages through his word and the world around us, not through the kinds of personal stories I just told. 
A message I pick up almost every day when I watch the news, for example, is that this world is not my permanent home. I am a stranger living in a foreign land. God may be shaping or preparing different people in different ways according to what types of vessels he made them to be and what he needs them to do in this life. I don't think the heavenly realm manifests itself in the physical realm for our entertainment or to satisfy our curiosity. And I don't think it has anything to do with how God values any one of his children over another. It's been years now since I've had any kind of such experiences that are weird like this. And I'll be happy if the next supernatural thing that I experience happens either when I die or Jesus returns. I know this is a sensitive topic with some. I've had more than one person raise the issue as to why not everyone is aware of spiritual activity. One very biblical reason that comes to mind why one follower of Jesus may be aware of something going on in the spirit realm who's standing right next to another authentic follower of Jesus who's not aware of something going on is that not all in the body of Christ are wired by God with the same gifts and abilities. Or maybe a more helpful term rather than gift or ability might be purpose or the part one plays in the body of Christ. And those abilities or gifts or purposes may not all be developed to the same extent from one believer to the next. Just like not all were called to be teachers or gifted equally as evangelists or healers, not all have the ability to discern between spirits. In 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's discussing the varieties of gifts which the Holy Spirit endows believers with, he mentions specifically the, quote, ability to distinguish between spirits, unquote. That's an ability that not all individuals will possess. That's what that passage is telling us. Not everyone has the same gifts and abilities. Every believer has the ability to discern spiritual matters to a certain extent. There's instructions in scriptures on how we may all do so. However, apparently, according to Paul, there's an ability to do so that's beyond the norm that's given by the Holy Spirit. Certainly, the discerning of spirits pertains to those who come in the spirit of the Antichrist or false doctrines and teaching, but it also very much includes the discerning and awareness of the presence of an evil being. Perhaps the worldview of the person who says that they have never experienced such things prevents them from understanding what's really going on around them. Regardless of what they experience, they'll remain skeptical until the day they see the full, currently unseen realm for themselves, either in death or at the resurrection. They'll choose to ignore the sudden feeling of extreme, unexplained uneasiness and impending doom as their hair stands up on the back of their neck and the temperature appears to suddenly drop. In response, that person will just turn up the heat and take a double shot of whiskey to help them ignore the feeling and to go to sleep that night. They'll categorize the cause of any physical phenomenon as something science has not yet discovered or will assume they're missing some facts as to what really occurred. They'll let their 21st century worldview do all the sorting and figuring out. They may miss 
that the sudden anxiety they feel as they unknowingly walk by the outside of a New Age bookshop and the feeling that they were just hit on the back of the head is a harassing spirit who doesn't like the servants who belong to Jesus and they feel entitled to the turf they're residing on. Maybe it's God's solution for some whose faith is weak, who he wants to increase their faith. I've often thought that's the case with me, that God thought that I needed to have those experiences, like I said, to prepare me for whatever. Maybe it's so that I can relay the stories now to you. Maybe he wants to give the experiences for a specific purpose or prepare people for a future assignment in his coming kingdom. This is all God's business to sort out. As for the dark side of the equation, and why one may think they have never directly experienced the unseen realm of evil, if I were Satan, and no, I'm not, contrary to what some may think at this point, (laughs) and I knew a human did not believe I or my kingdom was real, or at least it never manifested itself in the physical realm, Why would I overtly harass or try to cause fear in that person, risking that he or she figures out that I, Satan, may be a factor in their life, possibly be creating an adversary for myself? It'd be better to remain operating under the radar. As Satan, I would count their worldview of not believing in or considering the supernatural realm as a part of the equation a success. Along these lines, I'm sure that Satan was thrilled with the outcome of the Age of Reason, or what's been called the Enlightenment, or what I think is more appropriately termed as the Great Darkening. (laughs) If he can get people to believe there is no God or other spiritual beings that affect our world, his work is done. Whereas many regional spiritual princes may in fact enjoy the overt worship of humans to this day, in some places in the world, Satan's tactics in other places may involve what passes as scientific, theoretical explanations for things. It's one thing to be academically aware of the unseen realm and believe what the Bible has to say about it is true. That alone is a good thing and a part of seeking and knowing the truth. And that's been my goal with this podcast series. However, I hope this goes without saying. But as fascinating as topic as this may be to some, we are clearly forbidden to seek out contact with beings in the unseen realm. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 31 says, Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out, and so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 10 to 12 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Contact with spirits was a big thing in pagan nations that Israel was taking over. God clearly wanted the Israelites to have nothing to do with it. To do so is stepping outside of our master's will. And that leaves us on our own, which is not a good place to be when dealing with Beelzebub. I strongly discourage 
any seeking of such experiences. On the other hand, if God wills to put those kind of experiences in your path, there is nothing to fear and no reason to be shy. Jesus, hopefully your master, is in total control. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 19 to 21, wrote this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. According to Paul, Jesus and demons do not mix. Like I said, God knows how to get a hold of us if he wants our attention. We need to walk through life informed and with our eyes open, but we need to keep them on the path God has laid out for us. It's a path of following Jesus. So instead of satisfying our curiosity by seeking supernatural experiences, we're encouraged to seek Jesus and his kingdom with all of our hearts. It's in seeking Jesus and his kingdom first and first every day that we can experience his peace and satisfaction, regardless of what invisible stuff is going on around us. Our curiosity will all be satisfied in due time. As you contemplate these things, please keep in mind that the world, whether it's the spirit realm world or the physical world, has not changed just because you listen to this podcast. The only thing that maybe has changed is your level of knowledge or secondhand experience or understanding. There is nothing new that's going to happen to you because you have a more informed and complete view of reality. Nothing new to worry about. Hopefully you understand that in light of the reality of the spirit realm, that there is nothing to worry about for those who are hidden in our Lord Jesus. That is the safest place in the universe to be. Well, that's it for this episode of the Called Out Cafe. Thanks for joining me today. Next time, Lord willing, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' current state. Where is he now? What's he like now? And what are his capabilities? And I want to talk a little bit about what happens when we die. And since there are only a few more episodes in this current series remaining, I might also talk a little bit about the topic of the next series. But until then, may God bless you richly (laughs) and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.